Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 64 in the Old Testament. And the last time the message was titled, God's Immutability Gives Hope. So immutability means God can't change. He's perfect. He can't get any better than he is. (laughs) So we can change, but he can't. Uh, But that gives us hope. When we looked at the context of the Israelites, uh, you know, they saw what happened in Egypt. They saw God's mercy and grace. And no matter what the Israelites were going through in the Old Testament, because we are in the Old Testament this morning, Uh, They could look back at God's goodness, the fact that he's unchanging, and they received hope from that. But we also, in this age that we're in, we can look at how God treated believers all throughout the generations, all throughout the scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, and we also can receive hope from that. Uh, That God, you know, people do this. You ever have somebody you know, maybe a a best friend, and they, they like you for years, and all of a sudden they turn on you. And you're like, why do they do that? You know what I'm saying? But that's not, God can't do that. That's not his nature. So that's a blessing for us. Uh, Today, the message is titled Struggling in Prayer. And I do try to take the titles and kind of look at the chapter and give a, you know, I tell you, one of the more difficult things I have to do is to come up with a title that kind of encompasses the whole uh, chapter. But Struggling in Prayer. Well, we know that the Israelites, contextually, were struggling. We're going to go to, through contextual issues. We don't want to be insular. We want to look at what was God saying in that particular time period. But we also want to look at what is God saying today. And we can also, because of his immutability, see that when we're struggling in prayer, you know, God is there for us. This is really where, I guess you would say, the rubber meets the road. When you go to a Bible-believing church, and the church is not talking about everything but God's Word, if you're there for a while, what you start to do is you start to gather information about God's Word. You hide it in your heart. So when you go through difficult times, you can take different parts of the Scripture and apply it. So you might have come here this morning, and you're struggling with something. And you could look through the different scriptures as you get to know it. Is this a Hebrews 12 type of situation where God disciplines those that he loves? You know, something going on that God's trying to get our attention. Is this a Job 1 sort of situation where it's, it will pass, it's a rough time, but it also reveals our faithfulness to God? Is this a Luke 18 type of situation with Jesus's parable of the persistent widow, constantly praying, praying? It's just something like God is going to, he's going to work through, but we, we have to put some effort into it. We have to put some time, some relationship. We have to keep coming to God, as Jesus says in this parable. Is this a Romans 5 situation? Is this basically some trial that I'm going through that, again, it'll run its course, but it's a character builder? Is this a Psalm 66, 18 situation, which the Israelites were dealing with, and basically it's some type of sin issue that's kind of blocking the signals? So, you know, <laughs> nobody's perfect. Um, we in, in clergy or ministry, we also struggle with things, and you know, we, we kind of go through the things. And I got to tell you, I got to be honest with you, I'm probably more transparent than I need to be from the pulpit. 
But there's times I'm driving, <laughs> I got somewhere to go, and I got some time, and I'm by myself in the car, and I'm like, Lord, I don't understand. <laughs> or there's times that I put myself in a pickle, and I'm like, Lord, I know, I know, I know, I'm here because of me. I need you to help me to get out of this situation. So it pays to be honest. I mean, God knows everything anyway. Do we really think we're going to manipulate him or, you know, cajole him or do something to get him to act, you know, to find some loophole in his law that God's like, oh, you got me. I have to do this for you. It's good to be honest. It's good to to talk to him. It's good to daily seek him in the good times and the bad. And we see what happens through that. So we're going to look at this in three parts. And if you came in here with a burden you're probably going to be blessed. It might, doesn't mean that the burden might be relieved this week, but at least you, 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 you know what you're looking at. You know where God wants you, and you trust him for the outcome. So let's jump in, in verse 1. Remember, this is a continuous, 66 chapters, but a continuous thought that the prophet is going through line after line, he says, oh, that you would rend, that you would tear open the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor have has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him? So you see, it's very passionate. Uh, the first out of three is, you know, is a prayer for justice. You know, a lot of times the prophets would speak for the people. Um, you know, some of them were really doing the wrong thing, but the righteous would be those, those watchmen on the wall, so to speak, that we talk about. Uh, and he's saying, save us. And again, they're in this captivity, in this Babylonian captivity after Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC broke into Jerusalem, tore down the temple, the walls, and uh, expatriated the people to this foreign land with a lot of weird practices and, and just not knowing God and paganism. So the people were struggling in prayer. And they remembered what God did in Egypt. And they were begging God to take them out of the situation. By the way, he did. But they didn't know that beforehand. And you only have to do is pick up a history book to find that out. He says, the mountains shook at your presence. Again, the children of Israel had a rich history with their God. And they saw some amazing things. Actually, if you would turn with me to Exodus 19. In the Old Testament, Exodus 19, 16. And the, you know, he wants the people to, this is the, during a wilderness wandering, he wants the people to consecrate themselves. You know, they're assembling before their God, and this is what happens in verse 16. It says, then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Amen. Pretty exciting. They remembered that. And they're like, we're in Babylon. This place is really decadent. Help us, Lord. And he did. 
but it didn't happen right away. Verse 4, he says, there is no God besides you. And basically, God, you bless the one who patiently waits for you. And sometimes the waiting is the most difficult thing that we have to deal with. Because we want to take matters into our own hands. But there's sometimes that we have to give it up to God and just be patient with him. And see how he works that situation out. God responds and blesses those that patiently wait on him. Do we? Do we? Now, there's some caveats here. If, listen, a few months ago, a bunch of us went downstairs. And we do a lot of proactive things in this church. Uh, We were taught CPR and AED and all that stuff. Pretty neat, you know, life-saving techniques. Uh, And about 18, I think, of us got our from the American Heart Association. We got our certificates. I got mine. Uh, If somebody was to, I don't want to pick on anybody. Let's say somebody falls down into the aisle and uh, they're starting to, they're not breathing. Well, probably a few of us would jump down and teamwork and try to help that person based on what we know to bring them back. Somebody else would probably be on the phone. Uh, Actually, we have an officer in the lobby, so I'm sure he'd come and help. The first aiders would come. And probably many of you would, that don't, are not familiar or too many people, you might just be sitting patiently praying. That's a perfect scenario. So when I say waiting on the Lord, if I see somebody fall down on the ground, I'm not just going to keep talking up here. We're going to end the service for a while. So, you know, we actually talked about this in the young adults group about Christian cliches. You see what I'm saying? Oh, just wait on the Lord. Well, sometimes God wants us to act because it's an emergency and we should act. You see what I'm saying? When I went on patrol and they say there's a person with a knife or a person with a gun in my police car, I would be praying, lights and sirens going really fast, saying, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom in this situation. So we should always have a praying heart. But when there's an emergency, it doesn't mean we check our minds at the door. We go. And this is what God wants us to do. Um, We we don't want to give the the unsaved world a reason to look at us like we're foolish. We're a bunch of cliché sayers. You know, there's a time to act, and then there's a time to wait on the Lord. And we have to know the difference between the two of them. Now, the Apostle Paul takes this concept. He has a subtle nuance to it as he encourages believers in Corinth to pursue godly wisdom and trust God. Let's look at that. 1 Corinthians 2. And you see a lot of the New Testament reveal the mysteries in the Old Testament. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, starting with verse 6, he says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Before I go on, uh, the Apostle Paul was not saying uh, anybody who has knowledge is foolish. Because here's a man who had studied for years. He was a genius. He had memorized the law. He knew the law. He was a great debater. But he basically said, that has to acquiesce to the things of God. Because a lot of things we learn here are pretty great and we should know it. But once this world passes away, there'll be no need for it anymore. However, the things that we learn about God are eternal. So he continues and he quotes what we're covering in Isaiah. He says, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We don't even know the half of it. 
We trust God. We learn about God. We understand his precepts. We try to live according to what he would want in our lifestyle. Uh, But at the end of the day, we really don't even have a clue to see the glorious things that when eternity comes and his kingdom comes, all the things that we try to pursue about God will come to a fruitful um, end, in, in a sense. Verse 10, But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world. The Spirit of this culture, by the way, is, is really decadent. And if you're, you don't see that, American culture, you're not paying attention. It's poised against the things of God. There's a a, a war going on behind the scenes for the heart and soul of our nation, I believe. Uh, So he continues, so we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, the person who's unsaved, doesn't seek God, doesn't know God, doesn't care. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. He knows the spiritual realm and he knows the natural realm because these things have been revealed by God. So you get to know both realms by seeking God. Why do people do these things? Why do these things happen on the planet? The answers are from God and they're also in his scripture. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So Isaiah, where we are, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, they take the same scripture and they basically say, you might even think you love God and you know God, but you don't know the half of it. Wait till the the revelation starts coming. Wait till this, this acquiescence of his world uh, is, is becomes more prominent and this world becomes fades into the background. And you see two men of God hit this from two different angles. It, it is deep. It's a little deep. But you pray about it and you'll get the answer. Uh, verse 5, we continue, Isaiah 64. It's, he says, you meet. So God, we want you to act. We want you to meet on our behalf. We want you to act on our behalf. He continues, But God, he he knows God's character. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. And these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our uh, righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, our sins like the wind, have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. So two out of three is Isaiah, the spiritual watchman, watchwomen. They were, and I love this, again, in prayer, being honest. Some people... And I see this sometimes in the Christian culture. They don't get their way and they're so quick to blame God. And they don't see maybe some of the circumstances or the, their free will actions that put themselves in these positions. God just likes an honest heart. If we're going to start, we're going to ask something from God, we should probably start with being just completely honest with him. 
So, two, they acknowledge they're sinful, they've done, and there's a lot of really bad things that the culture was doing, and it's like, you know, they were kind of sitting in a pile of ashes and, and starting to look back and go, yeah, it was a long road, but we got into this pile of ashes because of all the things where our culture went, and our culture's going in a bad direction. But they realized they couldn't save themselves, they couldn't deliver themselves, and you know what? We're going to key in onto this, because it's, it's a big misconception that they knew that good works couldn't save them. We'll get to that. Verse 5, he says, you meet him or her, or you respond to him or her who rejoices and does righteousness. What does that mean? So we rejoice, we joy in God. And folks, the sign of a mature Christian is even when we're in a difficult, dark time, and we don't understand why, that we still give God the glory. Because you'll hear it, Satan will... will you know, we'll use other people around us that are not spiritual people. And they'll, they'll say things like, well, where is your God now? And I've heard this, and I've heard a lot of people tell me that they've heard it. It's like the same line, like everybody goes to this class, how to make a Christian feel worse when they're struggling. You know what I'm saying? You know, where is your God? I was, oh, my goodness, how many times do I have to hear this? But even when we're not getting our answer or we're not getting it the way we would prefer it, we still have to give God glory. Because he knows best. Honestly, if we're going to start as Christians trashing his decisions, then we should sign up for God. Put your resume in. Let's see if you can run the world in creation. We, that's hubris. We can't. So we rejoice in the Lord. But the, the person also does righteousness. And that doesn't mean they're perfect or sinless. It means they, they try as best they can to walk close with the Lord as possible. Their desire is to please him with their lifestyle. Do we? Or even, is it a desire? You might say, Pastor Joe, right now I'm going through something and I'm not in a good place. And that's great. That's freeing. That's honest. Um, But is the desire to get back with God and to get right with God? You see what I'm saying? God is not looking for perfection because we can't be perfect. The only time we do things that are really amazing is really with, with his power and his strength. So again, that's the caveat. We can't be perfect. The other caveat is that we shouldn't look for a formula to get our prayers answered. And you see in some denominations, if you say this, if you say it this many times, if you do this, then God is surely going to act in your favor. Is, is that true? Is that reflective of the scripture? It's not. We're, what are we, taking God's sovereignty away from him and taking it for ourselves? He's the boss. But he loves us. He's merciful to us. He hears our cries, right? And it's it's interesting, as you go through these chapters, you start to see this relationship. Where are we and where is he? And how are we interacting? Struggling through prayer, right? James 5, 16b, it says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. This describes somebody, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous person. Again, not a sinless person. That person does not exist. Only one person existed like that, and he was fully man and fully God, and that's why he was the way he was. Um, But this describes somebody close to God, and that can be everybody here. As close to God as you can possibly get as a sinner. I'm a sinner. I want to be as close to him as I can possibly get. And I'll have less of those prayers. (laughs) where I put myself in a position and I'm asking him to bail me out. So, uh, yeah, it's just, you live and you learn. <laughs> That's what, with age comes wisdom. <laughs> Maturity in Christ comes wisdom, right? Here's the, another thing that's fascinating is that the person who's close to God understands when he says no. 
Now think about that for a moment. As we get closer to God, as we're really in sync with our Lord, when he says no in prayer, and we abandon the idea because we realize, you know what, he he knows I have to trust him. So I've often said this from the pulpit, thank God for many unanswered prayers. So I can look back, Joe's life, you know, being a Christian 20 plus years and see many unanswered prayers and realize if he would have given me that, that would have been bad. He knew better. And I only can see that in hindsight, right? Some are mysteries why some prayers were answered. And I guess when I get to heaven, either he'll tell me or it really won't matter at that point. (laughs) So, uh, you know, part of it's got to be faith. (laughs) So um, it's good stuff. He continues on, basically, if I, if I take the, the pieces from here, he says, we sinned, we know that you were angry about that, we need to be saved, and this is repentance. This is a correct attitude regarding our place and God's place. We live in a culture where nobody's ever wrong, and that's why there's so many lawsuits and so many court cases, and you've got to keep hiring more judges and more lawyers. Because they say that there's, a, there's one lawyer for every three people in New Jersey very litigious. You know, nobody can just say, you know what, I was wrong. I, I give up. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to sue you. But this is, this is our society. You know, everybody's led to believe that they're, they're right. So, of course, when there's a conflict, well, let's go to the courts. Let's go to the police. Let's go to mediators. Let's go to... Do we ever say that we're wrong and just going to give it up and say, hey, I'm sorry? So, it's just a healthy way to look at ourselves and look at God. Verse, verse 6 he says that sin makes us like an unclean thing. Now, if you were unclean and there were various ways that you could do things to defile yourself, in the Old Testament, you would have to take a little bit of a hiatus or a suspension from going up to the temple, offering certain sacrifices until you could make things right. But he also says our righteousness is like filthy rags. Okay, this is a little graphic, um, a little, little uh, disclaimer beforehand. The translation for our, now check this out, the best that we can do. This really applies a lot to self-righteous people. You ever meet somebody that, I don't know, maybe they're a churchy person, and they're just, same, same thing. They're never wrong. They're always right. Their ways are better than yours. They look down on you. You know, you should be more like me because I know everything. That's called self-righteousness. When God sees that, it's odious to him. It's, it smells. It's not, you know. But he says that our righteousness It can't save us. It's like filthy rags. Now, this can mean, translation, either menstrual rags that they used, or even for a man, a bodily discharge or a wound that's oozing onto uh, a fabric that, after you take it off for a while, it smells, it's dirty, and you want to burn it. So think about the best that we can do. Now, let's take this into context. Good works are good. However, if we're going to take good works and say, well, God, you owe me something or you even owe me salvation because of my good works, it's not going to fly. It's not going to fly. So it's a powerful metaphor and it certainly can, it gets our attention because it's that powerful. We can't balance out the good with the bad. Again, let's think about common sense. We're, we're thinking creatures, right? God made us with a thinking brain. He also reasons being in the court systems for 25 years, I've never had a robbery suspect go to the judge. First of all, his lawyer would tell him, shut up and sit down, let me talk, okay? And say, listen, Your Honor, you, I did rob that bank and I did shoot the teller, but I'm 30 years old. For 30 years, I've gone in and out of banks. I've never done that before. 
So you really have to take all the good, all the times I was in a bank, uh, 10,000 times. And I did this this one time, but look at, put the 10,000 against the one little incident. And uh, I think you can see that I'm not guilty. Where do you think that person's going to end up? Better off not saying anything. So the idea that in some religions do this is they, they have this idea, and I don't get it, Judaism, Christianity, you read the entire Bible, which I have, Genesis to Revelation, it doesn't say that anywhere. However, religious people have come up with this formula, just do enough good works. What saves us is Christ. He did the work on the cross. He died for our sins. So, again, we do good works. As long as we keep that in mind, knowing that that's where our salvation comes, God likes our good works. But if we think we're going to use our good works to persuade God or uh, manipulate him into us getting into heaven, it's not going to work. Otherwise, Jesus came and he wasted his time. So, I just want to read um, the shepherd's notes on this subject. So you like the shepherd notes, okay. It basically says this on page 97 regarding this subject. It says, people generally, now let's look at this, this powerful verse. He says, people generally do not fear God today. Why not? Why don't they stand in awe of his greatness? Probably the problem relates to our concept of ourselves. We are more intent with developing a healthy self-image And I say it in our culture, it's gone off the rails. Everyone's a YouTube hero or a Facebook hero. It's it's really uh, morphed into narcissism. I am great. I can do nothing wrong. If you don't like my posts, I unfriend you. You're done. I block you. (laughs) So let's read that again. We are more intent with developing a healthy self-image than having a biblical view of ourselves. Verse 6 is not a pretty verse, but it is biblical. Perhaps if we recognized who we really are apart from God's intervening grace at the cross, we would have a greater fear of and reverence for God. Amen? Now, somebody coming into the church seeking, they might say, well, I don't think, this is, I don't think I'm going to come back to this church. And it's happened here, as you can tell, right? Look, some, there's some gaps. Uh, because it's hard for a prideful person or a person who, has, who just wants everyone to think that they're great to come in And listen to the scripture. The Holy Spirit will try to convince that person and move them towards the cross. And they'll resist it. They'll go, I don't want to change. I like who I am. I think I'm great. Not coming back to this church. I'm going to go to the place down the road where every Sunday they're hooting and hollering and they're telling me how great I am. And And listen, this is what Bible teachers have to compete with. But the truth is we do have to change because we're sinners. Okay, continuing on. He says that we, we fade as a leaf, our iniquities, our sins, like the wind have taken us away. Now, if you've ever been in a hurricane, I actually have, and boy, are they powerful. Great metaphor, powerful metaphor. Leaves, if the winds are strong enough, cars, things blow off the roadway, people, animals in the air. I mean, seriously, hurricanes are powerful. So this wind metaphor is very powerful, and in the flesh... We have no power to be righteous. So our, our sins, like the wind, if we're trying to do it in our own strength, we have no power over sin. We have no power over temptation. We have no power over the flesh. You see what I'm saying? The only power that we have is through God. And I'll tell you this, I went for a test, a medical test, and I couldn't eat 
Yeah, I suppose it's healthier if you eat like four or five smaller meals than two or three huge ones. So I eat all day long. <laughs> I'm like a cow. I'm always grazing, you know. Uh, <laughs> I didn't really need to say that. But, <laughs> but I went for this test, and I couldn't eat for a day and a half. I don't want to exaggerate. It wasn't two full days. Boy, it started with the rumbling in the stomach. Then I got this killer migraine. My head felt like it was going to explode. I got dizzy. I got, I'm like, oh. I called them up. I'm like, can we speed this test up? I'm dying over here. Put me under. And they didn't. <laughs> so, but my flesh, my spirit and my mind were saying, we have to go for this test. My flesh was saying, you idiot, feed me. I am hungry. You'll see very quickly the trichotomous nature, body, mind, spirit. And they can war with each other. Trust me. Your flesh, my flesh is very strong when you don't give it something it wants. So just saying. Um, if you have one of those tests, you can call me up and I'll pray with you. But <laughs> you can also look at this as th- this wind metaphor, the hurricane, those that have given into sin and have been carried away to its destruction. And I don't say this to be mean or to poke fun, but if you find somebody that you know that is in really literally a pile of ashes, um, they made a mess of their life, their relationships, their, their marriage, their, if everything's just shot because of a series of bad decisions. And they say in tears, you know, I, I didn't think it would get this far. Um, I've seen it. So it's, it is a powerful metaphor, but it's true. You let that, it's like you're like a sail. It, it catches you, that, that, those iniquities. And if you're not in Christ, you're not grounded, you're gone. He says, no one calls on your name. We're going to cover this in Romans 3. Because if you think about it, what does that mean? Well, when we go into Romans 3, we're going to talk about that more. But God was the first cause agent when it came to a relationship with him. Think about this. You know, before sin entered the world, he made the garden. Everything was perfect. Adam and Eve, he made them. They conversed with him. Um, Once they sinned, they broke fellowship with the Lord. And he had to actually reach back out to them because they were hiding from him. Even today, in the age of grace, right? I didn't save myself. Well, you're a pastor. You're right. I didn't save myself. He saved me. He actually reached out to me first. First of all, he sent his son on the cross to die for my sins. And through his Holy Spirit, he reached me. And he reached me through evangelists. And he reached me through different people. And eventually I said, you know what? I want to know this God at this point. So God is always the first cause agent when it comes to a relationship with him saving our souls, love, any of those things. And that's what he's referring to. We don't naturally, as sinful flesh, just become righteous and start reaching out to God. It doesn't happen like that. He says, you have, in their situation with the Israelites, he said, you have hidden your face from us. You have consumed us because of our iniquities. Again, Psalm 66, 18, their sin, their grievous sin, the decadence that they did, even in his house, in the temple, the idols they put up, it broke fellowship and sin demands judgment. So what's the hope? The hope is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. That's his motive. For God so loved the world, his motive, that he gave his only begotten son, his action, This comes, the next part is our response, that whosoever would believe on him, right? The action, we're we're three down the road, would not perish, but have eternal life. The fourth part of that is that that's what saves us. That's what saves us. 
because God loved us so much. Verse 8, last few verses. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you our potter. And all we are, the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. Just to, for those that are new to the scripture, a person didn't have to remind God to be merciful. Remember, Hebrew poetry was very passionate. It's, there's hyperbole in there, right? Believe me, God doesn't have to be reminded. You're supposed to be nice, God. Oh, gee, I'm sorry. No, he's always merciful. But this is, this is the plea of the prophet and the people to God, you know, and we're going to talk about the punishment. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Babylonians destroyed it in 586 BC. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. People were expatriated to Babylonia. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned with fire, literally, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us severely? So three out of three is the right conclusion and a plea for God's mercy based on his goodness. Now, let me address the temple thing first, and then we'll move towards a conclusion here. Uh, Verses 10 through 11, again, history will tell us uh, the ruins and the wreckage of what the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar did in Jerusalem, the mess they made. Um, It's not like the Geneva Convention today. They were cruel, they were heartless, and uh, they just left the place a mess. They, they, they looted the temple, then they burned it to the ground. And to the Jewish people, there was a spiritual significance here. But you know what they, they found? That even without the temple, God still wanted a relationship with us. See, now this is, this is the thing. And we see this sadly in some sects of Christianity where God establishes something good, even the church. And then people over, over many years almost, be, almost idolize it or worship it. If you're new to the scripture, this building is not the church. If every one of you left, this would be a building on Half Acre Road. The church, according to the scripture, is the people that comprise the organization known as the church. But some, and even the horror movies, you know, the the demons chasing you, you got to get into the church building. Well, Christ said that if you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're a believer, you can rebuke that demon and it can't enter you. But this is Hollywood. You see what I'm saying? Well, I got to get sanctuary. I got to get to the altar. That's movies. That's Hollywood. They don't know anything about the Bible. You see what I'm saying? So what the people started to do, and it was very interesting, the ruination of the temple system had a side effect of getting the people to understand, you look to Jerusalem, there's nothing there, but God's still there. You can still have a daily relationship with your God, your father. He says, you are our father. Pretty neat stuff. No object, no priest, no pastor, no rabbi. They can, they can never take the place of God. We're just here to facilitate people getting closer to God. You know, we're, we're all part of the same church organization. Important things here. He says, verse 12, will you punish us forever? Will you eventually act on our behalf? Now, sin will separate us from God, but the punishment also has to fit the crime. Now, this is, this is another thing, and, and this is why we do the, Q, the Q&A on Wednesday nights and stuff, because people have a lot of questions, and some of them are simple doctrinal questions that no one ever answered for them before. Believe me, I grew up in a denomination, I really didn't know Jesus, even though I wore a crucifix around my neck, um, 
you didn't ask questions and your questions weren't entertained. It's just the way it was. So that's why we try to get those questions answered. So, Pastor Joe, I don't understand. Um, There's some sins that God uh, hates more than others. Yes. But all sin is the same. Yes. Watch the dichotomy here. All sin is the same in the fact that all it takes is one sin to separate us from God. Well, we probably did that when we were three years old, okay? Um, you know, we, we leave our mother's womb. We're born in the flesh. We sin. So there's no hope. That's why Christ, uh, Christ came, to save us from our sins. Only he could pay that penalty. Okay, all sin separates us from God. Yes. However, Christ is that bridge that fixes that situation. Next point, the punishment fits the crime. If you look at the Old Testament, there was capital punishment. For some of the grievous crimes, there was capital punishment. But for some of the minor crimes, there wasn't. So God had a proportional system of justice. So yes, all sin separates us from us. In in the same sense, it's all the same. However, God is a merciful God, and there's proportionality to his law. When you start to think about this, it all makes sense. Perfect sense. The problem is when you find a false teacher or you you don't get your questions answered and you get confused. But all the answers are right here in the scripture. I love logic. I love debate. Um, I love apologetics. To me, it's a lot of fun because I'm dealing with a, a system that works every time. You know? Verse 8, you are our father, mercy, endearment, relationship. Father, you know best. As our creator, you guide us and you mold us. We are the clay and you are the potter. Jeremiah 18, that's powerful. So that's another a companion scripture about God being the potter on the potter's wheel and fashioning the clay. If you ever watched a potter, if that clay could talk, it would probably be like, ow, oh, Man, that really hurt. Oh, you split me in two. Oh, you put me back together. You, you ever watch a potter? Perfect metaphor. Because when we allow him, because we have free will, we could do whatever we want. We could rebel against God till our deathbed. Not a smart idea, but we could. When we allow him to have first place in our life, to have sovereignty, we, we're like the clay. God's like, you're a lump of clay. I want to put a finish on you. I want to put lines that match I want to put proportionality into you. I want to make you a beautiful vessel of honor that I can use. Metaphors are powerful. If we go through our whole life and, you know, we just see things through our colored glasses, we're just going to remain that lump. I personally, I'll just be honest with you, I didn't like when he squeezed me and he split me in two and he, you know, speaking metaphorically, it's not fun. But there are things in all of our lives that he has to get out to make us that vessel of honor that he can use. Very, very powerful. We have to give up our sovereignty. Again, it's our choice. And give sovereignty to our creator and let him see what he thinks is best for our life. Give him the reins of our life. And again, I'll be honest with you, it's one of the hardest things to do as a believer. So, we put this all in the context. We don't want to be insular. So we look at the the Israelite situation. We look at the context. The Israelites struggled in prayer. Their problems were self-caused. They were in Babylon because they they walked away from God. They ran away from God. They said they pretty much didn't want God in their life. 
And they did it in their own strength, and they couldn't defeat Nebuchadnezzar. They ended up in Babylon, self-caused. However, God's a merciful God. They asked him to act, and he eventually did act. They, they worked through their punishment phase. They repented to him. They said that we, that we would change, and you know what? He showed them mercy. Now, I don't, if you're all here, you're not in Babylon, so I, you can't definitely make the same parallel there. But we've all struggled in prayer, and we've all had difficulties. I'd be lying to you if I didn't say it happened multiple times. And the question is, is it going back to the being? Is it a Job 1 situation? Is it a Romans 5 situation? Is it a Psalm 66 situation? Is it a Luke 18 situation? And we have, to, we have to go through prayer and just say to the Lord, I'm seeking you. You've got my attention. Sometimes it's not God at all. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We're not going to feel that part for a while. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. So you're saved, you're going to heaven. You don't really feel that until your last breath, and then you realize, well, I'm with God. Jesus was right. We have to trust those promises. But when he comes and establishes his kingdom, we are going to feel different. New bodies, it's going to be amazing. But Jesus asks us to trust him. But he does promise believers. Look at the persecuted church in Syria, in parts of Africa, in parts of Asia. The struggles they have just because they want to call themselves Christians in worship. The bombings of churches periodically in, in uh, Sudan and in Egypt. Jesus said, You're, this, this world is evil. But in my timetable, I'm going to come. I'm going to redeem the physical creation as I've redeemed your spiritual souls. You just have to be patient with me. The Israelites knew there was a delay in answered prayer. Do we know why ours is delayed? Are we seeking that? If you're part of the prosperity gospel, and I've counseled people that have come out of that, it's a false gospel. Because they teach you formulas. It's their shtick. They teach you ways to circumvent God's law or to say certain things that he must act for you. Wow, I wouldn't want to be that preacher. This is God we're talking about, okay? He has control. He understands. I don't. I want to seek his wisdom. When you come out of a movement like that, you either quit on God because you've been taught things that are confusing. You either quit on him or you think he quit on you, and neither of those need to have. Well, first of all, he would never quit on us. A good idea is to investigate what is the issue. When we struggle in prayer, in the meantime, what do we do? We trust him. We wait on him. We rejoice in him. We find good, solid Christian mentors and accountability partners to encourage us and pray for us in our time of difficulty and try to get back on the righteous road of rejoicing and in righteousness as best we can, realizing that it isn't our righteousness and good works that are going to save us. It's him, A, that's going to save us, and B, that has the power to either A, answer the prayer, or to explain it to us and help us to understand in a way that we know why that prayer wasn't answered. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m 
On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.